The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Turn with me to the book of Romans, chapter 12, at verse 14. For the past few weeks, we've been looking at the reconciling work of Christ. We've looked at 2 Corinthians 5, and Troy preached about how as Christians we've been reconciled to God through Christ, and how we've now been given the ministry of reconciliation, so that we are now Christ's ambassadors. And we've also looked, Tucker preached through two Old Testament examples of the reconciling grace of God. But this morning we want to consider the further implications of being reconciled to God in terms of how we are commanded to live as peacemakers. And our text is Romans 12. Hear the word of God at verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, It is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is the word of God. Father, we ask for your help, for your spirit to give us eyes to see your truth and to put it into practice by the power that you give. Through Jesus Christ we ask. Amen. Romans 12 is the beginning of the practical application section of the book of Romans. In light of the glorious gospel of Christ, And Paul takes 11 chapters of Romans describing that gospel, that gospel that hopefully you have received, How must we then live as followers of Christ? Today, I want us to see four peacemaking commands given to us in our text. There are actually more than that, but we're going to look at just four of them. And the first is this, bless those who persecute you. Bless those who persecute you, verse 14. Bless and do not curse. The Christian's calling is to respond with blessing to those who may persecute or hurt us in some way. Whether the persecution and hurt is massive, maybe even to the point of life-threatening as it is this very day with many of our brothers and sisters in different parts of the world, or whether the persecution or hurt is of the minor, everyday sort, you and I are called by God 
to follow Christ in the way of the cross and to bless those who may hurt us. Isn't that a heart-searching command? Isn't it against our natural inclination? When someone hurts us, our natural reaction is to hurt them back in some way, to get back to the, at them, whether overtly and directly or whether covertly or even just in our heart. But the gospel says, no, since you have been reconciled by the work of Christ, since you have been freely loved by Christ when you were an enemy of God, then you must show that same grace to others. You might be tempted to curse them, to speak hurtful words, to do hurtful things, or at least to wish that on them. But God calls you to instead overflow with the love of Jesus Christ and to bless them. Isn't that what we just sang in the final verse of that hymn? May the love of Jesus fill me as the waters fill the sea. Him exalting, self-abasing. This is victory. Every one of us will have opportunity this week to apply this command, I'm sure, at least in a small way. It may be as you're leaving the parking lot today and somebody cuts you off. It may be some kind of major persecution because of your faith in Christ, and maybe you end up losing your job because of Christ. Whatever the extreme, I want us to apply this to our lives. And think about it especially as it applies to our words. To bless refers primarily to our speaking. Blessing usually has to do with our words. Ephesians 2.29 says, Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs that it may benefit or that it may bless those who listen. And Paul is speaking about our language, our words, the use of our tongue. In other words, let your speaking bless others. Husbands and wives, certainly applies. Parents and children, brothers and sisters in the church, employer and employee, co-workers, neighbors, and friends. If you've experienced the reconciling work of Christ, if by the grace of of God, through faith in Jesus Christ, you've been forgiven of your sins and been given new life in Christ, then when others speak words that may be hurtful or unkind, you are called to bless them. Now, that does not mean you just become a doormat. It does not mean that you can never confront sin. It doesn't mean that you can't contend for the truth. But it does shine the searchlight of God's word on our hearts, and it asks us, what is our attitude toward that person? What's, our, what's in our heart? What's our manner? What's our tone? It comes out in our response. Every time we speak, especially when we've been wronged, we have the opportunity to reveal Jesus Christ in some way, to show forth in our response the beauty of Jesus Christ, the grace of Jesus Christ. It may be that God has put someone in your life right now that you might learn to put into practice this very command. It may be your spouse. It may be your child. It may be a parent or a relative. It may be someone at your job. That person 
may be making life miserable for you right now. With their attitude, with their words, with their manner and tone of voice. And even though it may not actually be persecution for Christ's sake, that person at that moment becomes your functional enemy. And God calls you to bless and not curse. And what is your goal in that situation? You have to ask yourself. Your goal is not necessarily to win the argument. Your goal is not to get your way or to prove you're right or to return in kind. No, if you belong to Christ, your goal is to glorify God in that circumstance. Your goal is to reflect Jesus Christ. Your goal is to show forth the humility and the grace and the gentleness of Jesus Christ because Jesus has rescued you from the miry clay and set your feet on a rock. Ken Sandy, who wrote the book The Peacemaker, which, by the way, is just a tremendous book. If you want to study these things in greater depth, get that book and study it from cover to cover. Ken Sandy, though, gives this account about an incident with his wife, Corlette. He says, one day, Corlette said something that really hurt me. I don't remember what she said, but I remember going out into the backyard a few minutes later to rake leaves. The more I dwelled on her words, the more deeply I slid into self-pity and resentment. I was steadily building up steam to go back into the house and let her know how wrong she was. But then God brought Philippians 4.8 to my mind. That's the verse that says, whatever is true, whatever is right, whatever is noble, whatever is pure, think about these things. Ken goes on to say, ha, I thought, there's nothing noble, right, or loving about the way she's treating me. But the Holy Spirit wouldn't give up. The verse would not go away. It kept echoing in my mind. Finally, to get God off my back, I grudgingly conceded that Corlette is a good cook. This small concession opened the door to a stream of thoughts about my wife's good qualities. I recalled that she keeps a beautiful home and practices wonderful hospitality. She's always been kind toward my family, and she never missed an opportunity to share the gospel with my father, who eventually put his trust in Christ just two hours before he died. I realized that Corlette has always been pure and faithful, and I remembered how much she supports me through difficult times in my work. Every chance she gets, she attends the seminars I teach and sits smiling and supportive through hours of the same material, always saying she has learned something new. She is a marvelous counselor and has helped hundreds of children, and she even took up backpacking because she knew I loved it. I realized that the list of her virtues could go on and on, Within minutes, my attitude toward her was turned upside down. I saw her offensive comment for what it was, a momentary and insignificant flaw in an otherwise wonderful person. I dropped the rake and went inside, but not to unload a storm of resentment and criticism. To her surprise, I walked in, gave her a big hug, and told her how glad I was to be married to her. The conversation that followed led quickly to a warm reconciliation. Well, we all can relate to those kinds of stories. And what a great example of blessing others when we might be tempted to curse. Bless those who curse you. Second, our second point is do not be proud. Verse 16, live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. 
Here Paul is driving home the point that when you've received the grace of God, you relate to others with a new sense of true humility. Do not be proud. Do not be conceited. Be willing to associate with someone lowly. Peacemakers are people who have been humbled by the cross of Jesus Christ. Because the cross has exposed my sin. Even my sins of a critical spirit towards others and judging others out of a proud heart. And so since I have been loved by Jesus Christ, I have been humbled by the cross. I have been disarmed by the cross. And the cross has stripped me of this tendency to be self-justifying or to be focused on self-pity or to always be defensive. In fact, when I look at my remaining sin and I consider all the grace I have received from God, I should be a lot better than I am. I am humbled by the gospel. And so I should be able to obey this command, do not be proud, do not be conceited. In other words, if I am seeking to be a peacemaker, I must begin with cultivating a heart that is humbled by God, a heart that has a real sense of being a debtor to God's grace and that Jesus Christ is a great Savior. Here's a good question to ask yourself. What is my present attitude toward Jesus Christ? Think of it this way. Do I principally view Jesus Christ as a Savior or as a law giver? Now, certainly he is both. But what is Christ's disposition to me? Does he say to me, I love you, you are mine? Or does he say, get your act together if you want me to bless you? My point here is that if you principally view Jesus Christ as a lawgiver and not your Savior, you will either feel worthless and guilty over your failure to keep the law, if you're not doing very well in those terms, and end up joyless and self-focused, or... If you think you are doing a pretty good job of being good, at least outwardly, then you will be prideful and easily judgmental of others. You will be quick to become impatient with all the sinners around you who can't seem to get their act together, and you will fail to breathe out the peacemaking grace of God. I had an experience driving a couple years ago. Some of you have heard this story, but... I was deeply humbled. We were pulling out of Book Avenue onto Lidditz Pike, and it was raining. I think we were coming to church, and we had some of our kids were still with us at the time, and we, I was turning right on red. But as I turned right, I realized that somehow I hadn't noticed a giant truck barreling down Lidditz Pike. He had the green light, and I was turning right, right in front of him, and it was wet, so the tires wouldn't connect, and we were spinning out on this little hill, and I thought, I've done it. I'm killing my whole family here. We're going to die. And certainly, we didn't, as you might guess, but (laughs) the truck put on his brakes, screeched to almost a complete halt. I finally got some traction and started to go, and we only are on Lita's Pike for a few feet, and we get in the left lane and turn left on another back road to come to church, and... I was breathing out a prayer to God, thank you, Lord. And as the truck went by on my right, he just laid on the horn, you know, and I said, oh, thank you that you're just beeping at me. That's that's so great. 
thank you that we're not dead. Well, the point of the story is this. I was greatly humbled by my utter stupidity with that move. And it lasted for a couple weeks at least that if somebody would pull out in front of me, I was as kind as could be like, go ahead. I am the king of stupidity. You couldn't have done something as stupid as I did. Now, see, that is a humility, you might say, of sorts. It's not being proud. Too bad it didn't last longer. But peacemakers are those who have a broken and contrite spirit before God and who live daily in humility and joy in the cross because of what Jesus has done for them when they were enemies of God, when they were stupidly pursuing their way of sin. One of the great principles of biblical peacemaking is what Jesus points out in Matthew 7, that we must first take the log out of our own eye before we can take the speck out of our brother's eye. And Jesus is talking about confronting someone else about their sin, and he's saying, first, deal with your own sin. First, be broken and humble before God about your own sin. And the fact of the matter is this. If you don't deal with your own sin, if you are not humbled before God, even if your contribution to the fight or the conflict is only 5% and the other person's is 95%, if you do not approach that person without first taking out your log, then you will come across as harsh and angry and unloving. And even if you win the argument, you will lose the person. You have to take the log out of your own eye first. Husbands and wives, it may always seem to you that you are at least 50% right in any fight, probably even 60%, maybe even 75% right. But oddly enough, your spouse feels the same way. Funny how that is. Parents, your teenager may be 90% wrong. I can say this this morning because all the teens are gone, right? Some of you teens here, don't spread this around. Maybe that teenager is 90% wrong and that teenager is disrespectful. I'm not telling you to, to never address disrespect. But I will say this. If you do not approach him or her with a genuine humility before God and a sense of your own need for God's grace and dealing with your own log of the things that tend to rule your heart as an adult, then you will utterly fail to minister the grace of God to your child at that moment. And probably they will more and more tend to see your Christianity as hypocrisy. So do not be proud, but cultivate a true humility through the gospel. Our third point is this, verse 18. As far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Notice Paul begins with that phrase, if it is possible. That implies that it might not be possible. In fact, we know that the gospel itself may bring a degree of division that you cannot fix. Jesus says that he who comes to divide households And some of you know how painful that can be. But beyond that, even in the normal conflicts of life, you may do all you can to promote peace, but that does not guarantee that peace will result. That's the truth of this verse. Jesus was the perfect peacemaker, 
and they nailed him to the cross. But what this command calls us to is this. As those who have been reconciled to God through Christ, you and I must do everything we can to promote biblical resolution to the daily conflicts of life. As far as it depends on you, as much as you can do, even though it doesn't guarantee that peace will come, the command here is to do everything you can to promote biblical peacemaking. What does that mean? Well, the Bible is full of guidance about how to rightly resolve conflict. You can read Ken Sandy's book, and you'll learn a lot, I'm sure. Things like take the log out of your own eye, as we've already seen, or as James says, let everyone be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to get angry. In other words, when conflict comes, seek to truly listen to the other person. And beyond that, seek to understand what that person is saying and what are those person's real concerns. Seek to understand the other point of view. Maybe that person is concerned about something that you haven't thought about yet. Maybe they have a point. The Bible has many other principles as well, such as overlooking sin in love or confronting sin gently and in humility. The Bible teaches us to forgive others and what that forgiveness really means, how to carry that out. We're also told to seek wise solutions to problems. We can't go into all of these now, but verse 18 is essentially saying, make it your aim to live this way, to learn to be a biblical peacemaker. If you've been reconciled to God, if Jesus Christ has given you peace, grow in peacemaking in your life and in your experience. That is one of the primary ways that the world will see in practice the fruit of Christ's reconciling work in Christians living out their faith. When the world sees Christians fighting with each other, it doesn't adorn the gospel. When the world sees Christians acting like the world and gossiping about others and slandering others and holding grudges and refusing to forgive and seeking vengeance, the world says, I knew that the gospel you preach is only so many words. They don't see the evidence in our lives. There will always be conflict in this world because there will always be problems in this life. Financial problems, health problems, tough decisions to make, differences just in the way two people look at things. Problems in families, problems in churches, problems in communities, problems in the world. And James goes on to tell us that what really complicates problems is our sinful hearts. In fact, he says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that wage war within you? So not only are there the problems that we have to solve in the world, but there are our sinful hearts that make everything much worse. And so you and I must seek to obey this command in the power of the Spirit, as far as it depends on us, to live at peace with everyone. Ken Sandy tells another story that I think is a helpful illustration of this truth. He talks about his law school days, and he belongs to a church, and he's going to law school, and he decides to bring this friend, Cindy, to his church, who doesn't know Christ, and he's invited her there, and they take their seats, and the service begins. But to his utter surprise, 
The pastor says, before we sing our first hymn, I'd like so-and-so elder to come up front here with me. And Ken thinks, oh, no. I saw them having that heated debate in Sunday school last week. The pastor's going to rebuke this elder in front of everybody, and Cindy's never going to want to come back here again. So the elder comes up, and the pastor puts his arm around him and says, this elder and I, many of you know, had a heated discussion in Sunday school last week. We just want you to know that Sunday afternoon last week, we met together, we confessed our failure to each other, we forgave one another, but since you all saw it, we want to also confess before all of you and ask your forgiveness and just tell you that Jesus Christ is at work in our lives. And the elder spoke as well. And all this time, Ken writes that he's just thinking, oh no, I hope she doesn't hear all this, I hope it goes away. He's not even listening to what's being said. And so the service goes on, they sing the hymns, and the pastor preaches the sermon, and on their way out, he's trying to downplay all of this, but the girl he's brought says, I still can't believe what your pastor did this morning. I've never seen a minister do something like that. Could I come back next week? Sees a difference. And sure enough, she starts attending every week, and she sees the power of gospel, and she commits her life to Christ. And he remarks upon it all. He says, when I brought Cindy to church that first morning... I hope to impress her with the friendliness of my friends and the preaching of my pastor, but God had a far more effective plan in mind. He exposed the embarrassing conflict in our midst and showed that my pastor was far from perfect. And then against this humbling backdrop of our imperfections, he revealed his grace by demonstrating the reconciling power of Jesus Christ in our midst. As far as it depends upon you, live at peace with everyone. You do not know how God may use that in someone else's life for the glory of God. Well, our final point is this. Do not repay evil for evil, but love your enemies. Verse 17 and then verses 19 to 21. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. And then down in verse 19. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written... It is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is a call to turn away from revenge, an eventual attitude, an eventual spirit. It's a call to entrust your circumstances to God, even when those circumstances include evil people doing evil things. It's not outside the bounds of the sovereignty of God. In fact, Peter enjoins us in 1 Peter chapter 2, he says, we're to follow Jesus Christ, who when he was insulted, when he was cruelly treated, he did not return in kind, but he entrusted himself to him who judges justly, his father. Jesus did not take revenge. He entrusted himself to his father. Peter says, walk in his steps. Do the same thing. Trust your God. Now, this passage does not rule out the need for police or the military. Just a few verses later, in chapter 13, verse 4, Paul will speak about the state bearing the sword. So there's a place for that. And we're not speaking about genuine self-defense and things like that if you're being mugged. But in our personal lives, when it comes to people who sin against us or persecute us or hurt us in some way, the Bible calls us 
to this radical pathway of loving our enemies and actually doing good to them. And that is so counter-cultural against every cultural norm in this world. It's counter-cultural no matter where you live on this earth. And Paul refers and illustrates this by these heaping coals, by heaping burning coals on your enemy's head. What's he saying here? There's a lot of different interpretations of this you may have read. But I believe Paul's teaching the irresistible power of deliberate, focused love. Ancient armies, we know, often used burning coals to fend off attackers. You wouldn't want to be besieging a wall and have the attackers up there and pouring on your heads burning coals. The idea is no soldier could resist this weapon for long. It would eventually overcome even the most determined attacker. Love, Paul's saying, has the same irresistible power. At the very least, actively loving an enemy will protect you from being spiritually defeated by anger and bitterness and a thirst for revenge. And in some cases, your active and determined love for your opponent may be used to bring the, by God to bring that person to repentance. There's an illustration from World War II that comes to mind. Ernest Gordon was a prisoner of war in the Pacific Theater during World War II. You may have read his book, Through the Valley of Kwai. The new name of it is To End All Wars. Gordon was captured by the Japanese and forced with other British prisoners to endure years of horrible treatment while building the notorious Railroad of Death through Thailand. Faced with the starvation and disease of the prison camps and the brutality of his captors who killed hundreds of his comrades, Gordon survived to become an inspiring example of the triumph of Christian love against human evil. And this love shone especially bright one day when Gordon and his fellow prisoners came upon a trainload of wounded Japanese soldiers who were being transported to Bangkok. Here is how Gordon described God's work of grace. They were on their own and without medical care. Their uniforms were encrusted with mud, blood, and excrement. Their wounds sorely inflamed and full of pus crawled with maggots. We could understand now why the Japanese were so cruel to their prisoners If they didn't care for their own, why should they care for us? The wounded men looked at us forlornly as they sat with their heads resting against the carriages, waiting fatalistically for death. They were the refuse of war. There was nowhere to go and no one to care for them. Without a word, most of the officers in my section unbuckled their packs, took out part of their ration and a rag or two, and with water canteens in their hands, went over to the Japanese train to help them. Our guards tried to prevent us, but we ignored them and knelt by the side of the enemy to give them food and water, to clean and bind up their wounds, to smile and say a kind word. Grateful cries of Aragato, thank you, followed us as we left. I regarded my comrades with wonder, he goes on to say, Eighteen months ago, they would have joined readily in the destruction of our captors had they fallen into their hands. Now these same men were dressing the enemy's wounds. We had experienced a moment of grace 
There in those blood-stained railway cars, God had broken through the barriers of our prejudice and had given us the will to obey his command, love your enemies. Overcome evil with good. That really gets to the heart of peacemaking, doesn't it? And don't we see how short we fall? There is no way that we can do that apart from active dependence on Jesus Christ. He is the one who is able to give us the power to more and more live this way and to be a biblical peacemaker in our everyday lives. Yes, maybe there'll come a time of a massive hurt like that and a massive opportunity to obey God's command. But more often than not, it's in the everyday life with our family, with our loved ones, at our jobs, at our schools, that God intends to build into us Christ-likeness and gives us opportunity through conflict to actually glorify God. If you've been reconciled to God through faith in Christ, may you show forth his peace to others. And if you have not come to faith in Christ and given your life to him, may you do so today. And may you become a biblical peacemaker through Jesus Christ, your Lord. Let us pray. Father, these things hit us hard. We confess that we fall short of the glory of God, but we are hopeful because of our new identity in Christ, that we are children of God, that you have loved us in Christ, that you have put your spirit in our hearts, that you have given us your word that you have told us to follow you by your strength. We thank you that you not only command us, but that you enable what you command. And so we pray that in this very practical area of showing forth the grace of Jesus Christ, we pray that even this week, with the opportunities you give to each one of us, O Lord God, give us grace to be like Christ in the power that Christ gives to the honor of Jesus Christ. And in his name we pray. Amen.